Please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians chapter four. This is verses one through 15. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. You've probably heard the saying that the medium is the message, right? You're familiar with this. You've heard this before. Uh, It's kind of a core principle in marketing and communications. And the medium is the message. It actually comes from Marshall McLuhan, who's a Canadian communications theorist. He first proposed it in his book called The Medium is the Massage, which was a typo by the publisher. But he liked it, so he had them keep it. And the reason we think that he liked it is because he really believes media massages our brains to have us behave in certain ways. And so he actually liked it. He he really believed that the medium is the message and the massage in that way. And, And really what he means when he says the medium is the message is that the way that we send and receive information is actually more important than the information itself. And so another way to say this is consider how 280 characters or a 15-second reel actually shapes how we communicate in our Twitter and Instagram world. Consider how the medium actually shapes the message in that sense. And Marshall McLuhan was actually almost prophetic in his predictions of how our day and age would be. He, in many ways, predicted cancel culture 40 years before it would happen. Listen to what he said. There will be one big gossip column that is unforgiving, unforgetful, and from which there is no redemption. Read any 
Twitter feed that's trending and you'll find cancel somebody or so-and-so, right? He also predicted what's called surveillance capitalism when he said this, electrical information devices for universal tyrannical womb-to-tomb surveillance are causing a very serious dilemma between our claim to privacy and the community's need to know. Lastly, he predicted some of our election, election controversies. He said, real total war has become an information war. It is being fought by subtle information media under cold conditions and constantly. Listen, Marshall McLuhan was brilliant. He was almost prophetic, and he was right about so much. And the medium is the message is right to an extent. It's not correct when we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is the exact opposite. In other words, those of us who are witnesses to the life and death and resurrection and reign of Lord Jesus Christ, for us, the message actually shapes the medium. And that's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and that's what we're going to look at. So I've got two points for you. The first one is the message, not the massage, the message, verses 1 through 6. And the second point is the messengers, verses 7 through 15. So let's look at the message, verses one through six together. What is this message? What is the content of the gospel according to Paul? Well, look with me at verse five. He says this, which if you don't have uh, the text in front of you, a Bible or the worship guide, go ahead and get it out now because we'll be referring to it. Verse five of 2 Corinthians four, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's Paul's message in a nutshell. Not too different from Jesus' message when he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm the king, by the way. That's what he meant by that. That's why it's at hand, because the king is here. Jesus is Lord. That's our three-word worldview. It's so simple and yet all-encompassing in that way. Elsewhere in Romans 10, 9, and 10, what we used to call in Campus Ministries days, Paul's TNT. You get it, 10, 9, and 10? This is what he says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. These three words, Jesus is Lord, are dynamite. They reshape everything. So Jesus is Lord. Really what that means is that Jesus has absolute claim over all of creation and over all of culture. And yet, we don't see that in reality in many ways. In fact, not only is Jesus Lord by virtue of his resurrection, he's really Lord twice over, you could say. He's Lord first because we know from Scripture that Jesus is the creator of all things. He has authorial rights. If you make something, if you're the maker, if you're the creator, you have rights over the thing that that you've made. And so in that way, Jesus is Lord. The whole creation, the whole world belongs to him as creator. But second, he's Lord a second time because he has purchaser's rights. He purchased with his own blood all of his people and even all of creation. In the very next chapter, of 2 Corinthians, Paul will say this, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Jesus is Lord twice over. Our message, our gospel, is that Jesus is already Lord, 
Not merely that you should make him Lord over your life, although that's good and important, but more so, Jesus is Lord over your life already. Now live accordingly. That's the good news, according to Paul. So how is this good news? How is this gospel, as we say? Well, it's important to show uh, a little bit about our culture to see why this strikes at our sensibilities in certain ways. You see, in our secular age, there's a narrative that's come to be called the age of authenticity, which what that means is rather than appealing to some authority outside of ourselves as millennia before people have done, our age is defined by appealing to what feels authentic within ourselves. This is a question of authority. And, and for the record, when we talk about Jesus being Lord, that's a, that's a question about who is authoritative, who has the authority. And so if you just look out at our culture today, and by the way, within the church, whenever I talk about our culture, I hope you always hear me say, this is the water we swim in. This is the air we breathe. So I don't think you're immune to this. It's not them out there, it's us in here. You look at our culture today and you see divisiveness. Why? There's no shared authority. Like think about even decades ago, you could appeal to a reputable news anchor that everybody believed was trying to actually get at the truth. We don't even have that anymore. And so what happens is with no shared authority, we just kind of sequester ourselves off into our camps and then we lob grenades at each other. That's where we find ourselves. And so because of this, really what we have as our authority is only accept what rings true to your inner self. That's our authority. That's how we determine what is right and good. Our ethics could be summarized as consumer choice and consent. You got those two things and that's ethical. Do the consumers want more of it? Okay, great. The almighty dollar wins out. Or did somebody consent? If they consented, if it's consensual, it's all good. That's our ethical system in this day and age. And I say that to say, in here, you're formed by this. Pay attention. And so really what this means is that tolerance or mutual respect for one another requires that we shouldn't criticize each other's values, especially not on sexual matters. This is a recipe not for unity, but for divisiveness and chaos. And that's where we find ourselves. Even science can't be appealed to as authoritative anymore because it's, it's embedded with all of these political ideologies, or so they say. And so we find ourselves with no authorities, no one to appeal to, except for our own innermost self. And so here's the extent, here's the summary. I'm going to give it to you in three points of our culture's worldview. And, and again, this is influencing you and me. One, if I can't get what I want, I can't be happy. Two, nobody or nothing should be able to stand in the way of me getting what I want. Three, if anyone does, it is a form of oppression. This is where we find ourselves. So when we say, actually, <laughs> sorry to say it, but your desires, your emotions, your sexual incl- inclinations are not Lord, but Jesus is, At best, it's laughable. At worst, it's oppressive. And so how, again, I ask, is this good news? Well, it's because these three words, simple as they are, but as profound and all-encompassing as they are, Jesus is Lord. This is what we as 
the Jesus movement, this, this body of people called the church, are called to give our radical adherence to. So now listen to this, contrasting, there's a, there's a prayer I'm about to read to you that's just a contrast. Um, hear it as a foil to our cultural kind of ethos that I just described. Listen to this prayer called the covenant prayer. It'd be a great prayer for you to take as your morning prayer in your three times daily prayer as a, as a way to relinquish your life. Listen to this prayer. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside by you, exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven, amen. Jesus is Lord. The proof, as they say, is in the pudding. As we as the church begin to return to Jesus as our Lord in actual daily practice, this has been and always will be the beating heart of renewal of Jesus' church in the world. And for the record, the church is the center of renewal for our city and for our culture. And so when I say the proof is in the pudding, what I mean is as we begin to, to actually live as if Jesus is Lord over all of our lives, there will be a clear contrast community created that will bear witness to the good news in and of itself. You'll be able to see what it's like when everybody in this community appeals to Jesus as Lord and this is what their lives look like versus our culture and the chaos that ensues. That's the only way that Jesus is Lord is actually gonna strike people as good news today. And so since we know that if we live and speak that Jesus is Lord, we will face increasing opposition. Since we know that, there's always a temptation to do what verse two says. Look at the text. Verse two says the temptation is to practice cunning or to tamper with the message. Why wouldn't we? And, and the word cunning that Paul uses here, he uses later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse three, when he says this, the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. What was the serpent's tactics of deception? Well, the first thing was he questioned the word of God. He, he said, did God really say? The second one was he contradicts the judgment of God. You will not surely die. In other words, the serpent's tactic, his cunning was to say, hey, listen, you would make a better Lord over your life. Preachers like me are constantly tempted to do that today just like they were in Paul's day. Because it's easier, it's more palatable than saying Jesus is Lord so you can't be. And the evil one's constantly at work trying to deceive us by cunning because he knows that to speak the message Jesus is Lord is to invite the tiger out of its cage. To begin to live this is to unleash a power that makes atomic power look like a warm breeze. Jesus is Lord, our three-word worldview is powerful. So where is that power today? Well, as Paul said in verse two, it's been tampered with. That word tamper is actually used for diluting wine. You just water it down a little bit, you get a little bit more, right? And so what, what's happened is, um, in the words of missiologist Alan Hirsch, we've made Jesus into a decency cop. 
We've reduced him down. We qualify his demands of discipleship until his lordship means next to nothing. Why do we worship him on Sundays but don't walk with him on weekdays? Why do we domesticate Jesus? You see, we've declawed the lion of Judah and we've treated him as a house cat so that he wouldn't mess up the furniture of our life. So why do we do this? Well, because we know if Jesus is Lord, then the call to follow him is a call to radical reorientation in all of life. And that's just too disruptive. It feels dangerous, maybe even uncomfortable to our middle-class sensibilities where comfort is king, not Jesus. So slowly but surely, we take him out of every sphere of life until he becomes a religious God that's fit only for our private life. Jesus has no bearing on any other aspect of my life, my financial, my political, my online, my social, my sex life. Jesus is not Lord over those things because he's, he's part of my religious life. And so the world hears us honor Jesus with our lips, but our heart, our life, our practice is far from him and far closer to American culture. But if Jesus is Lord, then you are not your own. Listen, he's patient. He will not coerce, but he will woo that remnant rebel in all of our hearts that resists his takeover. We fear, the reason why we we don't see Jesus as Lord as good news is because we fear that he will undo us. And he will. It's exactly what he came to do. But that's how he remakes us new. You see, if Jesus is Lord, then it means that we don't have to be, and so now the pressure's off. Let me give you an example of how this actually is good news. If Jesus is Lord, then it means that there's someone who has the might and the right to speak into and against that ruthless tribunal that lives in your own heart. Jesus has the might and the right to speak grace and mercy in that place where you are constantly criticizing yourself where you're frequently telling yourself stories of your own failure. You know, that part of you internally that that drives us either to do better or to just give up. If you think I'm psychologizing this, look at 1 John 3, verse 20. It says, whenever our hearts condemn us, John knew this was a thing for us. Our hearts condemn us. What does he go on to say? God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. The only way that part in you that condemns you consistently can be subdued is if Jesus is Lord and he has rights over you that even your own conscience, even your own heart cannot have claim to. You see, Jesus is Lord is good news because unlike you and me, he is uncompromisingly good, shockingly beautiful, and unfailingly true. And so he makes a much better Lord than you. He offers you his life in exchange for yours because all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. And then we don't invite him into our hearts. It's not what we do because he's Lord. We trust him. We give our unwavering allegiance to him in all of life. And then and only then can we use the words of verse 13 where Paul says, we believe and so we speak. We have given our confidence to Jesus, and now we have the ability to bear witness to Jesus in all of life. That's how this works. Only if Jesus is visibly Lord over our lives, only then will the church regain any legitimacy in our world. Yet, 
as we look out, so many still resist the gospel. So many people reject Jesus as Lord. And for those of us who really do know Jesus, who see him in his awe-inducing beauty, we wonder why people are so resistant. Look with me at verse 4. Paul's going to explain that to us. Verse 4 says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice that Jesus is so beautiful that the tactic the evil one has to take is to blind people because he knows if they could only see him, it would be over. So he has to blind them. So I don't feel this burden to convince you that Jesus as Lord is actually great for you. I just have to, I just have to hope the Spirit opens up your eyes of your heart to see him that way. Those of us who know that this is the case, we, we realize that we've, we've lag, labored, we've agonized to see people see Jesus as beautiful, and they just don't. So where's our hope? Look at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The keen Bible reader will, pay, will, will notice that there's echoes in this passage. You notice the quotation marks, right, around where it says, let light shine out of darkness. What's Paul talking about? Well, he's got the first page of the Bible on his mind. Paul's hearkening back to Genesis 1 because Paul knows that we are in and of ourselves so blind, so dead, so enslaved that only the creative, in-breaking power of God can open our eyes, enliven us, and set us free to see Jesus, the crucified Lord of glory in all his splendor. That's the state we're in, if not for God showing up and speaking, let light shine out of darkness. Listen, what this means is that we ought to be humbled. We, those of us who belong to Jesus, who have sworn our allegiance to him, have bowed the knee of the heart to him as Lord, we get to be humbled. Why? Because listen, if Jesus today, if you really believe Jesus is worthy of your life, It's because the work of God has happened that's on the order of magnitude of creation itself. That's the only reason that you actually believe in Jesus today, if you do. This is exactly what we see in the next chapter. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It takes creative power breaking in life out of death, light into darkness in order to bring us to the place where we would come to Jesus and take him as Lord and that be good news to our hearts. When God wills, the blinding power of Satan cannot obscure the blazing light of Jesus' radiant face. Let me tell you a story about this. I had a friend named Christian and uh, he was introduced to me by some, a couple other people in our congregation because evangelism is a team sport. Um, and they had met him, introduced him to me. We began building a relationship, and, and we began reading through First uh, John together. You'd be, honestly, you'd be surprised how many people really are willing to just like, if you're pleasant enough and, and sincere, sit down and just read the Bible with you and ask questions. You can talk, have a dialogue about it. So that's what we did. And over the course of that time, um, he, now looking back, would have said, that he really was um, just trying to find Jesus, a Jesus that suited what he wanted him to be. 
So, because he was kind of involved in the new agey thing, Jesus was kind of like this yogi. He was a, a cosmic Christ, as a recent author has put him. Um, all paths kind of lead to the same God, like that, that kind of thing. But the way he put it, Christian, said that eight, month, eight months into this journey, he realized the real Jesus is the Jesus that died on a cross, the Jesus of the Bible. And this is how it was brought home to him. One night, he was using psychedelics at an ayahuasca ceremony. And as he was tripping, he was looking out, and he began to see demons pervading the room that he was in. And they were crawling on people's shoulders and whispering things into their ears. And he never had seen this before, but he thinks now in hindsight, it's probably because we were reading the Bible together. And, and he began crying, he, he literally left, ran away, and began crying out to Jesus. And he said this bright, warm light just flooded where he was. And he felt this presence that made it so that he realized, okay, I'm okay and I'm secure. And that was the moment when he realized, I'm done with all of this. Jesus really is Lord and that that was good news to him. And and this powerful story actually culminates in now, Christian has this incredible ministry of bearing witness to Jesus to the New Age community. And so listen, God speaks light into all of our darkness. That's the only way that it works. And and it's not until we behold the beauty and the brilliance of the face of Jesus Christ that our hearts are actually won over to him like Christians was. And in wonder and joy, we say, Jesus, you are Lord. And so this message shapes the medium. If you haven't put it together by now, we are the medium. (laughs) We are the church We are those who have been called to bear witness to this good news in all of life, by what we say, by how we live, by who we are. And so the message shapes the messenger and their manner. Let's look at point two and see verses seven through 15. Look at verse seven with me. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Notice the plural pronouns. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I read that and I have this feeling that Paul never used the phrase, don't shoot the messenger, right? Because Paul really believed that the messenger was implicated in the message. A summary of these verses could be, the messenger is molded and models his message. That's really what Paul's saying here. And so right now, most of us, I don't think are persecuted like Paul's describing here. Some of you are like, I don't know, man, I feel pretty perplexed these days. We all do. But we still, even though we're not where he is, we still practice daily death and resurrection in our ordinary lives because this message is a message of a dying and rising Lord. So then its messengers are those who exhibit dying and rising in their daily lives. What does that actually look like? Well, it looks like small acts of self-denial. Small acts of self-denial. Maybe the most countercultural thing we could ever do. Because in our fast-paced, sound-bite, swipe-right culture, patient, attentive listening with genuine curiosity about others' lives 
is really powerful. And it costs us a little bit, right? Suspending yourself long enough to give sustained attention to another is an act of self-denial. Like, I really believe listening is the first act of love. Um, The great apologist of the 20th century, Francis Schaeffer, was once asked, hey, if you were given an hour with a not-yet-believer in Jesus, how would you spend that time? He he said, you know, I'd, I'd probably spend 55 minutes asking questions and listening really well to see if I could figure out what was really troubling their hearts and minds. I'd spend the last five minutes telling them something of the truth. Francis Schaeffer knew that listening was the first act of love and that we as messengers of this message, we bear this message by denying ourselves. And so the very simple way to put this is you begin by learning their story, then you share your story, and then you tell Jesus' story. This is what evangelism looks like in our day and age. This is what bearing witness to Jesus looks like in our lives. I'm gonna tell you a story of how I failed at that. In, um, when I was in college, I, I played a pickup soccer game. It was a great way for me to meet new people, invite them out, that kind of thing. And, um, and, I, and I met this guy named Muhammad who had just moved over from the Middle East to begin as a freshman at UCF. And Muhammad and I both love soccer, and so we played together all the time. And, and, and I came to learn that he was a Muslim. And, and so in our friendship, in our conversations, we would talk about me being a Christ follower, him being a Muslim. And at one point, I just, I just took the kind of risk that most of us are really hesitant to take, but I took the risk to talk to him about how Jesus is better than Allah. And it just kind of like ricocheted off of him. And this is like, couple months into our friendship. Like, I built a real relationship with him. And the reason why, uh, among many reasons why, was because I didn't take the time to patiently, attentively learn what was going on in his heart. You see, for him, um, fast cars and flashy clothes were more important than the Quran and Ramadan. You see, he was more materialistic and, and infatuated by American materialism than he was by the Islam of his home country. And so really, Jesus might have been better than Allah, but he wasn't better than a Bugatti. And so the gospel I proclaimed into this man's life wasn't fitting to the story that he had. I I didn't speak Jesus as Lord over his particular desires. And so it kind of deflected off of him. And so you see, Jesus is Lord And as we patiently, lovingly sustained attention in our relationships, begin to pay attention to what is at the heart of our uh, neighbors whom we love, we begin to find out how can we actually speak Jesus as Lord, not in a way that tampers it, but in a way that speaks it as good news to their hearts. That takes patience. It takes love. Let me give you two practices from the common rhythm that enable us as messengers to do this. The first one is three times prayer. I've already talked about this, but, but it's how we punctuate our days with prayer to practice dependence. And, and so we always want to speak to God about people before we speak to people about God. That's just like a great rule of thumb. Not just non-believers, but like your spouse, your friends, your children. Like it's just a good rule of thumb. And so I'm encouraging you to have a list of three to five not yet disciples of Jesus that you pray for with regularity. Make one of your three daily prayers a prayer for those who are not yet believers. I was actually with a member of New City and and we were walking together and the alarm on his watch went off and he goes, oh, it's time for my midday prayer. I was like, oh, let's do it together. He's like, well, I I pray by name for a few people that that don't know Jesus. It's like, that's awesome, let's do it together. And so as we walked, we prayed together for these people and I just thought that's a brilliant way to use the three times prayer practice. 
Another one is feast. Eat a meal with and for others. I can't think of a time, this doesn't mean it didn't happen, but I can't think of a time when I have led someone to Jesus that didn't involve food (laughs) at some point in the process. There's something about it. And listen, Jesus didn't invite people to religious services or lecture series. He invited people or invited himself to meals. That's how he did his ministry. And then in Luke 14, Jesus said to his disciples, those who have bowed to him as Lord, he said this, when you put on a dinner, don't just invite your friends and family and rich neighbors, the kind of people who will return the favor. Instead, invite some people who never get invited out. The lost and the lonely, the poor, the misfits from the wrong side of the tracks. They won't be able to return the favor, but the favor will be returned at the resurrection of the dead. And so for some of you, it feels like death to eat meals with people that are unlike you. For some of you, it feels like death to eat people with meals, or don't eat people with meals, eat meals with people, period, And you're just like, I just don't like my space invaded. And I would just say, hey, listen, Jesus is Lord. Let him be Lord over this area of your life. One meal a week, let him be Lord over your table. And and in doing that, these little daily deaths, verse 14 says that we are showing that we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The message matters. Jesus is Lord. The messengers, the media matters. People who display that all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. Let me close by telling you a quick story about that. In 2009, um, I led this evangelism group where we would read a chapter of Acts, we'd pray together, and then we'd go to UCF two by two, and we would walk around campus and use these wonderfully sketchy surveys where we would ask somebody, hey, Would you be interested in taking a spiritual survey and talking about beliefs? It was totally just an inroad to talk about Jesus. And so we would engage with people, and I can remember one guy in particular, we'll call him John. And John was militant at best. He just was like, I mean, kind of looking for a fight. Like he heard about the survey, he's like, yes, here we go. And so John, you could say, wasn't a success, (laughs) for us to have this conversation. And I was discipling some younger men, and so I had, I had somebody with me, and I was trying to talk to him about, hey, this is, this is how this works sometimes. Like, people aren't always gonna be about this, and don't tamper the word, right? Like, we're, we're just walking through this together. And then John uh, emailed me. You see, when I have a conversation with people, I usually give them my email, because it's pretty non-threatening. Just like, hey, reach out to me if you wanna talk. John emailed me in 2016, seven years later. And this is what he said. I don't know if you remember me, We met at UCF years back. You and another dude approached my buddy and me as we were leaving campus. You two had a survey you asked us to participate in pertaining to our religious and spiritual beliefs. I I accepted your request to participate in the survey solely to engage in a debate with you and prove you wrong. My ultimate motive, I regret to admit, was to cast doubt into your minds. I want you to know a few things. First and foremost... I want you to know that I am sincerely sorry. Unfortunately, our two paths happened to cross during my young, extremely arrogant, militant atheist years. If I were granted a few do-overs in my life, that encounter we shared together, believe it or not, would be one of them. Two, although I've thought about our interaction only a handful of times over the years, I want you to know that you had a profound effect on me. 
One of the main reasons I turned my back on God and Christianity was due to the sheer hypocrisy I continuously perceived amongst the Christians I deeply respected and admired during my formative years. I witnessed so much incongruence between what they said they believed and how they actually lived their lives and treated others. In retrospect, it was for this reason that I subconsciously issued myself an ultimatum. I'll either be a man of integrity or I'll be a man of faith. Despite the fact that I treated you so despicably during our brief interaction, I sensed a truly sincere care and kindness within you. You were patient with me, and although our beliefs were clearly at odds, you seemed to accept me despite my juvenile, disrespectful behavior. At the time, it further aggravated me, yet I didn't understand why. I've come to realize over the years that it aggravated me simply because I didn't understand it. You were authentic. You were genuine in character and in faith. It was something I perhaps had only witnessed a couple times in my life, and though I didn't realize it at the time, it gave me hope. You gave me hope, that is. Third, and lastly, I'd simply like for you to know that several months ago, I came to accept the Lord into my life. It's been an intriguing journey, getting to where I was to where I am now. So as not to take up too much of your time, I'll spare you the details. Don't spare me the details. <laughs> However, suffice it to say, the changes, the changes he has made, not only within my life, but within me personally, have been profound. Though we quite literally do not know each other, it is my sincerest hope that you are well. I do not know if I affected you in any way that particular evening, but I want you to know that through God's awesome power, you certainly had an effect on me, and for that I am eternally grateful. Seriously, thank you. Keep on keeping on. God bless. Because Jesus is Lord, we get to humbly serve our neighbors for his sake so that he can take our jar of clay efforts, weak as they are, and show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let's pray. Father, in your abundant kindness, you have said, let light shine out of the darkness in all of our hearts, those of us who belong to your son Jesus this morning. I pray that as we go out of this place and bear witness to Jesus as Lord in all of life, that you would begin through us to call and draw more and more and more people to yourself. Holy Spirit, that's your work. You are the surpassing power of God. Work in us and through us for your pleasure. It's in Jesus' name, amen.